Well, why don't you already take your Bibles, jump into Mark chapter 5. We're in a brand new chapter this morning. We're starting Mark chapter 5 now. and We want to dive right in. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some brand new pew Bibles in front of you, so grab one of those and, and get yourself to Mark chapter 5. We'll get there in a second. And wouldn't you agree that the best stories are full of surprises? I think we would. We love stories that are full of twists and turns. We've got that unexpected ending. I mean, how boring would it be to read a book where you know everything that's going to happen every step of the way? Or who would go see a movie where there's no surprises and has the totally predictable ending? No, we, we like the unexpected. Even for stories where we know the ending, if the story itself is full of surprises, we'll still be intrigued. So I take, for example, Romeo and Juliet. Did you know that Shakespeare's original title for that was, quote, the most lamentable and tragic tragedy of Romeo and Juliet, or rather the most excellent and lamentable tragedy of Romeo and Juliet. So right there in the title, it's telling you this is a tragedy. It's not going to end well. It's not going to have a happy ending. But you don't know how, and so you still find yourself caught off guard and and, uh, impacted by the rather abrupt double suicide ending. Rather tragic. So it really is true. Unexpected stories make for the best stories. And I have to tell you, our passage today from Mark chapter 5, we want to dive right in. It's one of the most unexpected stories in the entire Bible. Now, I'm not really exaggerating. This event in the life of Christ, it's part strange, part disturbing, part fascinating, but entirely captivating. It's the story known as the Gerasene demoniac. Most Christians know of this story, have heard of it. Even non-Christians have heard of this story. It just sticks out like it's in 3D. And the text itself, it's just so unexpected from beginning to end. You you don't see it coming. From one verse to the next, you you can't guess what's really going to happen next, especially if you've never read it before. And the passage we have today, it doesn't really need a special introduction. We're not going to give it any treatment. The text will draw you in by itself. By the end, though, much like the passage we looked at last time, where Jesus stilled the storm. It will serve its purpose in forcing you to ask, you know, just who is this? Who is this Jesus who can do such things? Who has this power? You've got to put yourself in the shoes of those who are encountering Jesus for the first time or learning, hearing about Christ for the first time. And when we see his life, just one unexpected event after another, after another. This is no exception. And, and in the end, we find... However, another reason to confirm and confess, just who is this? Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. And that's really apparent as we get to the end of this story here in Mark chapter 5. Again, I want to just dive right in because we have a lot to cover. 20 verses, Mark 5, 1 through 20. We're going to go through this verse by verse. And I really want to take you under the surface because the more you get to know the story, what's really going on, the more you can appreciate it and also really understand how unexpected this is. A lot of this seems to come out of left field. And I want to help you see this from Mark 5, 1 through 20. I want to point out to you 15 unexpected aspects of this story. And that's right, you heard me. 15. I know you're used to those, you know, girly man, three-point sermons. This is a 15-point sermon, but... Don't worry about getting these all down, writing them all down, making you get every one. Just, just follow along. We're going to go through this story, and I want to point out to you just how unexpected this is. And we start with verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gerasenes. You can stop right there. And first, we have an unexpected destination. An unexpected destination. This is taking place the morning after the calming of the storm at sea by Jesus and his disciples. They left the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee that evening before. They were sailing across the other side. And and somewhere in the middle of the night, this massive windstorm struck, threatened their lives, blew them off course. They thought they were going to die. You remember, especially if you were here, how Jesus stilled that storm. And after being blown off course, now we're getting close to morning and they're just now finally reaching the other side of the sea, the eastern shore of the Lake Galilee. Where exactly are they? Well, it says the country of the Gerasenes. Sometimes sometimes this whole region on the eastern shore was associated with this little town called Gersa on the eastern shore, hence the Gerasenes. 
Other times, this region was referred to as the Gadarenes. That's what Matthew calls it. That's based on the more prominent city in the region called Gadara. Either way, though, they've landed somewhere on that eastern shore, kind of in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. But, But this is an unexpected destination for them. Why are they going there? Why are they going to the eastern shore? I'm sure that's what the disciples were asking themselves. Like, Why, why are we going over there? Because there's nothing over there, nothing worthwhile. The western side of the Sea of Galilee was heavily populated, and it was, there, there were, it was a Jewish territory. And so that's where they should be. That was their mission. The eastern side was sparsely populated, and at that it was just Gentiles. It was Gentile territory. So I'm sure they're thinking, why are we going there? There's nothing for us there. As you can probably guess already, Jesus was going to have a divine appointment and he had to make it. Verse 2. When he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And secondly, we're greeted with an unexpected visitor. An unexpected visitor. Now briefly, let me just mention that in Matthew's account of this story. He, we learn that there are actually two men in this condition. They're like a tag team of, of crazy people living in the tombs. But in all three accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, clearly one man, he's the mouthpiece, he's the aggressor of the two. He takes center stage. And that's why Mark and Luke focus exclusively on, on the more extremely deranged of this pair. Now in reality, Jesus probably wanted to go to the eastern shore just to get some rest, to escape the crowds, because remember he had been inundated by them. But he was not going to find any rest this morning. Immediately they are greeted, not by the local welcome committee, but by a madman. It's probably barely dawn, and the first shades of light are just starting to appear. The sea is calm. Everything is quiet. They make it to shore. Maybe they start tying up the boat. They're thinking to themselves, we're finally going to get some rest. But then they hear this blood-curdling scream from the hillside above them, and they see this man running straight at them, yelling. And I can tell you this, whatever they were expecting to find on the eastern shore, it wasn't this. It wasn't this. And even worse, verse 3, And he had his dwelling among the tombs. This is an unexpected residence. And in verse 2 mentioned this man came from the tombs. Maybe you're thinking, well, he's just visiting a loved one there. No, in case you're wondering, in case you're mistaken, verse 3, he lived there. He lived in the tombs. Commonly back then, burial chambers were hewn out of rocky hillsides. And this man was literally living with the dead. This tells you a few things about him. First, he's deranged. I mean, who lives among the tombs? What would you think of the person who pitched a tent in the graveyard down the street every night and just slept in the graveyard? You think they're crazy or warped, deranged. Something is wrong with you if you are more comfortable among the dead than the living. And secondly, this exacerbates his uncleanness. We've already seen, and we're going to see more later, he's already possessed by an unclean spirit. That's a problem. That's bad enough. But in addition, he's made even further unclean by his residence. I mean, to Jews, just to touch a corpse made you seriously unclean. Just to touch it. So what does that say about a person who lives in a graveyard? I mean, he's extremely unclean, at least to the Jewish mindset. I mean, already, you can probably tell this is, this is kind of a strange story. Like what, what is going on here? And it's going to get worse because next we find, number four, an unexpected power. An unexpected power. Verse 3, he had his dwelling in the tombs and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain. Because he had often been bound with shackles and chains and the chains had been torn apart by him. And the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. I don't know, to me the most disturbing word in that verse is anymore. It says they couldn't bind him anymore. Which means they had tried to bind him several times, and it didn't work. It couldn't be done. 
And why is that? He kept breaking free. But not like Houdini. He's not an escape artist. He's more like a Samson. He's breaking the chains like they're plastic. He has a supernatural strength. And unfortunately, this man was no gentle giant. Matthew adds that he used his power to violently assault people. He, was, he terrorized the hillsides. If anyone was foolish enough or ignorant enough to pass by his way, he would swoop down upon them from the hills and just savagely beat them with no restraint. There's nothing holding him back. We're going to find out later, this man used to live in the nearby city, but he was driven out. It didn't solve the problem. He still was a menace, a terrorist to them. And so they had to do something about it. The townspeople, they must have gathered together, formed a mob. They went after him. Somehow they surrounded him. They pinned him down. They shackled his hands. They shackled his feet. And then Luke adds, they kept him under guard. He was under guard. They just they had to do something about this, this madman terrorizing them. And just as a quick side note, nothing has really changed, by the way. I mean, how do we today, with all of our modern medicine and science, deal with people like this who are so deranged? I mean, that we don't have a cure. We just lock them up. So it's really the same. The solution is to bind them, put them in a cell, put them in restraints, keep them under guard. There's no cure for this. But such efforts were of no use for this man because he could not be subdued, even by chains. He couldn't be subdued. And that word, by the way, in verse 4, subdued, damazo in the Greek, it means to tame. Like you would tame a wild animal. It's used of wild animals. We don't use this word of humans. But for this guy, it's appropriate. He was more like a wild animal than a human. But he could not be tamed. He's like a ferocious wild bear, and they tried to keep him in captivity. They tried to tame him, but he was too vicious, too powerful. They could not subdue him. Finally, he broke free somehow. He escaped. He broke his chains, escaped from the guards. And when he broke free, they were just like, well, let him go. Just, just let him go. What are you going to do? Their only resolution was now stay away. Just stay away from him. And that's what they did. We learn from Matthew that wherever this man was, the people knew, just stay away. They don't go there anymore. He's by this road. We don't go that road anymore. They just stayed away from him. He was a terror among the hillsides, and they left him to his madness in the tombs. And speaking of madness, it, it, it does get even worse. Number five, an unexpected madness. An unexpected madness from verse five, which says this, Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. You know, again, this is still what we do with, with insane people, deranged people, people who have you know, severe mental disability. We, we have no cure for them, so we just isolate them. Keep them out of society. Just get them out of our hair. That's what they did with this guy. Just get them away. We don't want to deal with them. We can't deal with them. The problem, though, is that with isolation comes self-destruction. He started to turn on himself. That's why today we have padded cells and straitjackets to keep people like this from hurting themselves. This man had no such protection. The demons infesting him led to constant torment day and night. Luke, would, Luke tells us that the demons at time would, would seize him and just throw him into a terror. They'd drive him out to the desert, the wilderness, and he could just be heard screaming in anguish night and day, nonstop, just being terrorized by the demons themselves. And can you just imagine traveling? It's very rocky terrain. You're hearing this piercing scream echo through the canyons, not knowing what it is, but then you remember he's out there. He's just this menace. Then we see that he cuts himself. He's gashing himself open with these flint rocks, most likely, these sharp stones, cutting himself. And why is he doing this? Well, maybe this is the man trying to silence the demons inside of him. Maybe it's the demons trying to destroy the man. We don't know. Either way, his body must have been covered in scars. 
And to make matters worse, we don't learn this in Mark, we learn this from Luke and his account. He adds, this man also was naked. Yeah, he was naked. Luke says that he had been without clothing for a long time. That's really not what you want to see. I mean, and now he's like the Incredible Hulk. You get this picture that he transforms and his clothes just get torn to shreds and he just can't, he can't be tamed at all. He's like a pure wild beast now in the hills. A total animal. So let me, let me just kind of pull this all together so far and, and, and paint this picture for you in these first couple of verses. The disciples, Jesus, they're coming in offshore. For the disciples at least, they just had the most frightening night of their lives. Remember that storm. They thought they were going to die. Jesus stilled that storm. They get to shore, probably towards morning. Finally, they're thinking we can get some peace, some rest, especially after that night. But just as they barely get to shore, they hear this blood-curdling scream come from the towering hills above. And then they turn, they see this man, this naked man, running straight at him. He has this very intense look on his face. And you know, just by glancing at him, you know he means to do you harm. Can you just imagine the, the bewilderment and the fear the disciples must have been thinking right, right now, feeling at this point? I mean, but what do you do when that happens? What, what, how do you respond? I mean, have you ever had a raving, naked, violent, psychopathic madman chase after you? Yeah, me neither. <laughs> What do you do? What's the response there? I I don't know. Later we're going to learn that there were some herdsmen. They were on another hill. They They were watching this whole scene unfold from a safe distance, but they were watching this whole thing. And surely they thought to themselves, this is not going to be good. This is not going to be good. They knew this man. They knew the demoniac. They knew what he was capable of. They knew his madness. They knew to stay away. We don't go to that hill. They knew what he did to those who passed by. So they watched this boat full of 13 men slowly drift to shore. And then meanwhile they see the demoniac. He locks on and he starts running at them full speed. They know his strength. They know he can take on 13 men. They know he's going to rip them to shreds. He's going to just terrorize them. And they're thinking this is not going to be good. And that's why what happens next especially to them, is so unexpected. Verse 6. Seeing Jesus from a distance, He ran up and bowed down before Him. This is number 6, an unexpected posture. An unexpected posture. It's like this demon-possessed man timed his run so that he got to the boat right as Jesus was disembarking. And when he got close enough to recognize Jesus, it was too late. The man, or rather the demons inside the man, realized they just picked the wrong boat to terrorize that morning. Understand, this man had never seen Jesus before. He had no idea who he was. No way to recognize him. But the demons inside this man did. They knew who Jesus was. And as they recognized him for who he really is, They had no choice but to bow down in submission. And granted, this is no worship, but it is a recognition of authority, a confession of Christ's lordship over them. We've seen this many times in Mark already, that demons, they're the ones who recognize Jesus. Even before people recognize him for who he really is, they know. They have only ever known. What makes it so unexpected, though, is that this demoniac, he bows down for no one. That word, in case you're wondering, demoniac just means demon-possessed person, demoniac. And, but he bows down for no one. He doesn't bow to people. He, he's a terror. So these herdsmen, they're watching. They must have been shocked. They see him run down. And, and instead of pouncing on these people, he, he goes up to one of them and he bows down. And they're thinking, what, what's going on? What's going to happen next? In verse 7. After he bows down, it says, And shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other? Jesus, Son of the Most High God, I implore you by God, do not torment me. 
For he had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. When you, when you take a second look at this, you find that this is an unexpected statement. This is an unexpected statement. You'll notice first, there's that shift from the singular to the plural. And back and forth it goes. There's just one man doing the talking, but he, he says we. He talks as if he's a we. And, and you can tell this man is, is just a mouthpiece for the demonic host inside of him. Secondly, notice what he says here. He says, what business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? It's just a stunning confession. He knows precisely who Jesus is. He's the Son of God. And the demons, they know this all too well. Back in Mark chapter 1, the demons again recognize Jesus as the Son of God. It's not till the end of Mark's Gospel when we finally hear that confession come from a human that Jesus is the Son of God. And even at that, it comes from the Roman centurion who was there killing him. But the demons know. They know who Jesus is, the one true God. And it scares them. Why? Matthew adds, they fear Jesus has come to torment them before the appointed time. Luke tells us that they also feared Jesus was going to send them into the abyss. And well, what's that talking about? What's going on? Well, Demons or fallen angels, they have an appointment with God for a final judgment. And they all know it. Nothing they can do about it. There's no hope for them. There's no mercy for them. They will be judged. They know Jesus himself will condemn them to the lake of fire and there's nothing they can do about it. Their only relief is that that time has not come yet. But they do fear. They do fear that judgment. And they do fear before that judgment being sent to what the Bible calls the abyss, which is like a holding cell. It's like death row for the worst of the demons. A place of no escape. They just await judgment. So they fear. And as Jesus tells the demons to come out of the man, they know their number is up. Their, their time is up. But they beg for mercy. They beg not to be sent into the abyss. They beg not to be tormented. Now, that's pretty ironic, by the way, because here are these demons. They've just spent years tormenting this man and others, but now they have the audacity to beg Jesus not to torment them. They can dish it out, but they don't want to take it. And then look, how crazy is this? Look at verse 7. Do you see how they appeal to God for help? Did you catch that? Verse 7. He says, I implore you by God, do not torment me. I implore you by God. They invoke the name of God to keep the Son of God off their back. I mean, who do they think they are? Well, we find out in verse 9. Look look there. And he was asking him, what is your name? And he said to him, my name is Legion, for we are many. And began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. We find next an unexpected name. We weren't expecting that one when you ask someone's name. An unexpected name. The demons pipe up again. They give their name, or at least they give a descriptive title. And they say, Legion. Now, so far, we already know this man is demon-possessed. We know that. And you're probably thinking, it's pretty clear he's a bad case. It's pretty extreme. So maybe you're thinking, this guy, he's probably got like ten demons in him or something. And there is precedent for that. Scripture tells us that Jesus at one point cast out of Mary Magdalene seven demons. So it is possible that demons, multiple demons, can possess one person. So you're probably thinking, this guy is extreme. He's probably got like ten, maybe twelve demons in him or something like that. But that's not the case. He calls himself Legion. What does that mean? What is Legion? Legion is a Latin term used by the Romans, to refer to one of their military units. And just how many soldiers were in a Roman legion? Do you know? 6,000. 6,000. So it makes you wonder, how many demons are in this guy? And even if he's using hyperbole, even if he's exaggerating, we're still talking about hundreds or, or thousands of unclean spirits within. Have you ever heard of anything like this? Read your Bible. You won't see anything like this in the entire Bible. 
That's why this is so unique and so unexpected. You don't expect this when you're reading the Bible even. I mean, a legion of demons. It's no wonder he was just mad and crazy. So we wonder, what's going to happen next? The demons, they know their time in this man is done. They beg Jesus for mercy. What's going to happen next? Well, I told you about these herdsmen. First, we're going to be introduced to their herd. Verse 11. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. You can stop there for a second. This is an unexpected occupation. When you think about it, an unexpected occupation. What strikes you is odd, you know, to Jews, pigs were an unclean animal. They weren't supposed to have anything to do with pigs, let alone herding them. Now it doesn't say these herdsmen were Jews, but nonetheless... Such a herd would only ever be found on the eastern shore. You would never find a herd of pigs in Jewish territory. They're the most unclean of the unclean. You'd only ever find such a practice tolerated on that Gentile-dominated eastern shore. But this really finishes the picture of uncleanness here. We're dealing with the most unclean situation ever. You've got an unclean man. He's possessed by unclean spirits. He's living in an unclean tomb. He's surrounded by people in an unclean occupation. And this all takes place in unclean Gentile territory. This is the most unclean story of the Bible. Now at this point, we we still want to ask, okay, he's got this herd of swine. What do the demons care about this herd of swine? Why, Why do the demons care about a herd of pigs? Well, verse 12, the demons implored him saying, send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Now that is an unexpected request. That's unexpected. You're thinking, well, they want to go into the swine. Is that even possible? Well, obviously it must be. We know so little about the world of angels and demons, so who are we to say otherwise? After all, Satan at one point possessed a serpent in the garden, so why not this herd of swine? But these demons will take anything that does not involve Jesus tormenting them and judging them prematurely. Anything is better than being sent into the abyss. Now now think about this. I want you to just stop, put yourself in Christ's shoes, in Christ's sandals, Just think about this. You've got this man, this legion of demons in front of you, and they're begging for a form of mercy to be sent to the swine. At the same time, they don't deserve anything good. They deserve only judgment. They're evil. They've been tormenting this man and these people for ages. And just with one word, you could send them into the abyss where they will be unable to torment people any longer. You're done. You guys are done into the abyss with you until judgment. So what would you do? What would you do? Well, of course, you would send them into the abyss. And you've got the power. Just, okay, you're gone. You're in the abyss. Go away. That's what you would do. Which only makes what comes next more unexpected once again. Verse 13, Jesus gave them permission. He gave them permission. This is a very unexpected answer. You're thinking, why? Jesus, why why are you showing mercy to these demons? And that's what this is to them. It's a form of mercy. Why why aren't you just judging them instantly? Right? The text doesn't say, I'll give you the answer. Why not judge these demons instantly? Well, it's for the same reason God does not judge all of the demons instantly. It's the same reason God did not judge Satan in the garden instantly. It's the same reason God allowed Satan to enter the garden in the first place. We don't know God's plan for these demons. We don't know. But we do know that God has a sovereign plan for allowing all of the demons and Satan to exist. They're not out of his control. Although they are wicked, they even they fit into God's ultimate plan for God's ultimate glory. Was not even Satan a tool in God's hand to lead Jesus to the cross 
through which God provided for man's redemption. We know even Satan and demons are not outside the scope of God's sovereign plan. So he's got a reason. That's the answer. He has a reason. For now, though, for these demons, we get to see a little bit of of the plan for them as verse 13 continues. Jesus gave them permission and coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine. And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. They all died. Now, if you've never read the story before, that's an unexpected result. It's an unexpected result. Just when you thought the demons were safe, they had gotten away, this happens. I mean, who expected this? And what makes this so striking is that pigs are not herd animals. They, they don't have a herd mentality. They don't stampede. They're stubbornly individual. Yet all these swine rush together down to their death. Now at this point, some would say this is the first instance of deviled ham in the Bible. For you, Rod. Others would say that the pigs here committed suicide. Or finally, some mentioned they went out with the swine dive. Swine dive. I'll stop there. I'll stop there. There's like a list of preacher jokes for this passage. I'll stop. There are a few significant observations to make, though. And first, how many, how many died? How many swine were there? 2,000. Which makes you wonder, does this mean there are at least 2,000 demons in this man? At least? Also, we wonder next what happened to the demons after this. text doesn't say they were obviously disembodied presumably free to go and roam again. We don't know. They leave the story. Because, you know, this story is really not about them. Talk more about that later. It's not about them. They're gone at this point. Left behind is a great loss of life. Some people wonder about this, the 2,000 dead pigs, because technically, didn't Jesus just ruin the way of life for those herdsmen? I mean, he kind of did. This was a huge loss of property. So why did he do this? Well, if these herdsmen are Jews, he could be taking a shot at their secularization. They shouldn't be raising unclean animals. text doesn't say that, though. We don't really know. We know this for sure, that to God, the life of one person is more valuable than 2,000 pigs. That's a fact. To God, people matter more than possessions, more than property, more than animals. People matter to God more than anything. Most likely, though, Jesus allowed this strange result to bear witness to the reality of this man's demonic possession and the reality of his freedom. Because just think, the demons entering this man, that was invisible. The demons leaving this man, that was invisible. The demons entering the swine, that was invisible. So people could say, how do you know it really happened? Well, Their rush to death was clear, visible evidence that this man had been plagued by thousands of demons and that he had been freed from thousands of demons. Also, the nature and the purpose of these demons was made clear by what happened to the pigs. What happened to them would eventually have happened to the man. Eventually, he would have been driven to to kill himself, to self-destruction. That, that's their goal. That's their, their goal, the demons. They drive to destroy the image of God in man. And so Jesus allows the unclean animals and the unclean spirits to both be dealt away with in one fell swoop. And the man is free. The man is finally free from his affliction. At this point, do you expect that this man is going to be different? He's going to be changed? Yes, you do expect that, and that's right. But the townspeople, at the very least, they don't expect it. That's why we can still say, if you're keeping track, this is number 13, an unexpected sobriety. At least to the townspeople, they don't see this coming. An unexpected sobriety, verse 14. The herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and in the country. 
And the people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind. The very man who had had the legion. And they became frightened. We find these herdsmen again. Remember, they watched this entire scene unfold in front of their very eyes. The demoniac comes. He sees Jesus. He bows down. They're shocked by that. Then they see him. They can tell he's making something out. He's saying something to them. It's like he's begging before him. Maybe at one point he cries out. He falls to the ground. He goes, he goes silent. At the same time, their herd of swine starts squealing. And pigs are pretty loud. So can you imagine a chorus of 2,000 of them starting to squeal at the same time? And then these herdsmen, they see something they've never seen before. It's a pig stampede. And one by one, they run down the steep bank into the deep water. And I'm sure the herdsmen try and stop them, but it's no use. It's like they're possessed. And all 2,000 of them die. Immediately, they run away. They tell the locals. Word spreads like wildfire. And just, just realize, these herdsmen, they want everybody to know just who is and who is not responsible for the death of these pigs. They want people to know, hey, it wasn't us. It's not our fault. We did not do this. It was this guy. It's just Jesus' guy. So in a very short time, the townspeople all gather. They come to Jesus, perhaps reminiscent of the mobs that went after the demoniac. But when they get close enough, they too, they're stopped dead in their tracks. And they're scared. And what scares them, though, it's not the pigs. It's not the 2,000 dead, bloated pigs floating in the water. That's not what scares them. What scares them is the man, the demoniac. Because he's not like his usual sociopath self. No, now he's sitting down. He's got some clothes on. He's in his right mind. Do you see that threefold contrast, by the way? He's sitting down as opposed to running around crazy. He's clothed as opposed to naked. And most of all, he's in his right mind as opposed to raving mad. Remember, this is the man they all feared. This is the man who is untamable. You couldn't tame this man. But here is another man, Jesus, who just did what no one else could do. And just with a word. He tamed him. But actually, he didn't tame him. He's not tamed. He's transformed. The man has been transformed. I mean, isn't this so amazing? This man was lost, and now he's found. He was enslaved to these demons. Now he's free. His mind is back. His self is back. His life is back. This is good news. I mean, if you were there, you're in that crowd, how would you react Hopefully you would celebrate. You have a fine occasion to rejoice. This man, he's, he's back, he's free. You'd go get his family, you'd reconcile them, you just have a little party. You'd also go, you get your sick friends and bring them to Jesus. Jesus, can you help my friends? You'd be begging Jesus, just stay with us a little longer. Just, just hang out a little bit longer on the eastern shore. We could use you over here. That's what you would expect. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure by now you're coming to expect the unexpected in this story. So you can probably guess that's not what happens. It's not how they react. We find an unexpected response. An unexpected response. Look at verse 16. Those who had seen it, it's a herdsman, described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man. And all about the swine. And they began to implore him to leave their region. This is one of the saddest verses in all of Scripture. You'd think they would give Jesus the key to the city. But no, they're frightened. They're scared to death. They just want him to leave. Why, why are they so scared? Well, here's what's happening. In Scripture... Whenever mere man encounters God or God's power, the response is always the same. And what is it? Fear. Why? Because in that moment, those people, they can't deny anymore that God exists. That God is real. That God is powerful. 
And that scares them. Well, why is that? Because they are sinful. They are wicked. They deserve judgment. I mean, if God is real, then that means they're not really going to get away with how they're living. Their false living, their hypocritical living, their wicked living. They're not going to get away. If God is real, then there is going to be a day of accounting. You're not going to get away with it. And that scares them. And when you see, when you really see God's power, just it's undeniable. You can't deny it any longer. So you're scared. And in turn, what happens next? Well, that fear drives some people to humble themselves. They fall down before God. They beg for mercy. That's the right response. That's good. Other people, though, they just want to run. They want to hide. Like Adam and Eve in the garden. They just want to hide from God's presence. And that's what these people do. That's their response. Or rather, they want Jesus to go away. Same thing, though. Like, just, just leave. Go away. Leave our presence. In hardness of heart, they are more comfortable with the power of darkness than the power of light. They would rather tolerate a demon-possessed maniac than have the holy power of the one true God in their midst. Because that holiness scares them, because they're not holy. They and their property were safer with the demoniac, so they wanted Jesus back on the other side of the sea. It really is sad. It really is sad. The one who could, who could free them, who could deliver them, who could forgive them, who could save them, was right there in their midst, and they rejected him. They just pushed him away. And even sadder is the next verse, verse 18. What did Jesus do? He got on the boat. He obliged. He's like, okay. We don't know what he said, if anything, but he gathered his 12, got on the boat. He's going to leave. I told you, this is quite a story. It's quite a story. There, there's so many unexpected twists and turns. You just you can't make this up. And there's one last surprise, a surprise ending. And if you've never read this, you, you don't know what's going to happen. We find lastly, number 15, an unexpected denial. An unexpected denial. Starting in verse 18. We'll finish this off. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. And he did not let him. But he said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. Now this this is so striking for Jesus to deny this man. Let me let me tell you why. I want you to see something here. Go back to verse ten. You see that word implore in verse ten? You gotta see it. You see the word implore? Perikaleo in the Greek. It's the demons, and they're imploring Jesus. They're begging him not to send them out of the country. And then the same word is used again in verse twelve. They implore him to send them into the swine. So they're begging Jesus, imploring him. And what, how does Jesus respond to that request? He's like, okay, request granted. He lets him do it. Then in verse 17, look at verse 17, you see the word implore again. At least if you're using the NASB, the word implore shows up again. Now it's the townspeople, same word in the Greek, parakaleo, and they implore Jesus to leave their region. They're begging him, just, just leave. Just go away from us. They're imploring him. And how does Jesus respond to that request? He's like, okay, request granted. And he gets ready to leave. And we get to verse 18. Now we're talking about the demon-possessed man, but he's been freed, he's in his right mind. And what does he do? Verse 18. He was imploring him that he might accompany him. It's that same word, parakaleo. He's begging Jesus. He's like, Jesus, please, let me come with you. There's nothing left for me here. Let me follow you. He's begging him. Now, we, we expect this. We, that makes sense. Of course, he's been freed and delivered by Jesus. Of course, he wants to follow Jesus. I mean, that's good. But how does Jesus respond to him? It's an unexpected denial. He says, no. Sorry, request 
denied. You're thinking, what? I mean, Jesus said yes to the demons, yes to the townspeople, but now he's saying no to his only one true disciple right there? I mean, that, that's unexpected. See what I'm talking about? I mean, you're thinking, what, what gives? What is going on? Why is he denying him? You can probably guess, though, what, what's going on. Jesus has other plans for his new disciple. This man wanted to follow Jesus, and he will, only in another way. And in reality, in a final act of mercy to an unbelieving people, Jesus was leaving behind a witness. This Gentile territory was largely beyond the scope of Christ's earthly mission. So instead of silencing this man, he commissioned him as the first full-time missionary. That's him, the first full-time missionary. And all he had to do was this. That's it. Just go home, tell your people what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. That's it. Just go tell them what, what God did for you. You love how simple that is? You didn't have to memorize a, an outline or memorize these verses or go do a class. Just go tell them what God did for you and how he had mercy on you. Share the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's what he did. You put together Matthew, Mark, and Luke at this point. You find that first he went back to his hometown, the city he came from. He told presumably his family, his friends, what Jesus had done. He told the whole city. But that wasn't enough. He went from there to the whole region on the east called the Decapolis and just let everyone know what Jesus had done for him. And we learn that God never leaves himself without a witness, even as they rejected him. So I hope you can see now, like I said, unexpected stories make for some of the best stories. It's a good story in the life of Christ. And they also teach some of the greatest lessons. With the little bit of time we have left, I want us to shift gears now and really focus now, okay, what's this teaching us? What are the lessons from this story? It's not just a story. This happened in the life of Christ. And it's for our instruction. So we ask, well, what do we learn from this? What are the lessons? I want to spend some time reflecting on these lessons now. Each of these four main characters gives us a lesson that, that you need, that is still relevant. So listen to this. The first lesson comes from the demoniac before Jesus delivered him. And the lesson is this. You are enslaved. Yeah. You are enslaved. This is you. And you might be thinking, wait, 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 wait what are you talking about? I, I'm not like that guy. I'm not demon-possessed. I'm not, I'm not that wicked. I'm not, I'm not that crazy. So, so what am I talking about when I say you are enslaved? Well, let me explain. All people, apart from Christ, before salvation, are just as enslaved as a demoniac, and you don't need to be demon-possessed for it to be true. Even, even aside from demon possession, all people are born enslaved to sin and they're in bondage to Satan. All people. Let me say this, quick side note. I know this story brings up some questions about, about the world of demons. Like, what's, what's going on? What are demons? What is demon possession? Can this still happen today? What do you do about it? What does the Bible say about this? In reality, though, these are valid questions, but this story is not given to teach us about demon possession. It's not the point of this story, and that's why I'm not talking about it here. But they are valid questions. That's why next Sunday, next week, doing a full sermon on all those questions. Demon possession, demons. Next week, that's all we're going to talk about. We're going to skip that for now, So, just so you know. But that being said, even apart from the whole demon possession aspect of it, I want you to know, all people apart from Christ are just as enslaved as a demoniac. And granted, he is the worst of the worst. That is true. But remember, none are righteous. Before God, none are righteous. Not even one. All are wicked. All are lost. All are headed to the same place. If you don't believe me, just listen to this. I'll just read these for you. First, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1-2. through two. It says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, 
of Satan, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. You are spiritually dead and you're marching to his tune. Here's another one, 2 Timothy chapter 2, which is 25 through 26. Here Paul is instructing Timothy how to deal with opponents to the faith. How do you deal with anti-Christians, so unbelievers? He says, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses having escaped from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. He's saying uh, all of the lost, they're enslaved and snared, held captive. They're out of their mind doing Satan's will. You may think, well, I don't feel like I'm being held captive. But as 1 John 5.19 says, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And as 1 John 3.8 says, the one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. Verse 10, by this, the children of the devil are obvious. So you're asking, is John really calling all unbelievers children of the devil? Yes. Yes, he is. All mankind has joined Satan's rebellion against God in sin. Everyone, you, me, all of us, we've joined that rebellion. And so it's like Jesus said to the lost religious leaders of Israel, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. Scripture is very clear. Right now, Satan, he's like the God of this world. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. And as a result, all are in bondage to him and bondage to sin. You may not be raving mad like the demoniac or demon-possessed. You don't have to be. But before salvation, you were enslaved to sin and you lived for everything except God. It's like Titus 3.3 says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. That's you. That was you. For salvation, you're enslaved to your lusts, your pleasures, your sin. Just as lost. Now you think you're better than the demoniac? And in a sense you are. Yeah, in a way. You're not, you're not crazy, I hope, or violent or deranged. You're not, you're not that bad. That's true. But you're just as lost. You have to understand that. Before Christ, you were just as condemned, just as enslaved, just as hopeless, just as helpless as that guy. Do you get that? Do you understand that? The, the sense of what we call total depravity. That was you. Spiritually, that is your condition. That's your problem. And unless you really grasp that and it hits you, you won't understand the second lesson. The second lesson, which comes from Jesus, is that Jesus can deliver you. Jesus can deliver you. That's the good news. That's the great news of all of Scripture. 1 John 3.8 says, You are of the devil, but the verse goes on to says to say, The Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. And Jesus came to set captives free. He came to heal, not those who are well, but those who are sick. He came to save and deliver, not those who are righteous, there are none righteous, but those who know they're sinners. And the lesson we learn from Jesus here is what? That he alone, he alone has the power to deliver you from anything. From, from demons to sin to everything. I mean, really, think about it. This man, he was bad. I mean, he's up there as the worst of the worst in Scripture. I mean, right? I mean, who is as, who is this wicked? And in all of Scripture, in your personal experience, who is more wicked than this man? More vile. And, and we learn he actually was possessed by like thousands of demons. Who is more lost? Who is more helpless and hopeless than this man? I'm sure they all said, that guy had never come to salvation. He's got no chance. Right? Wouldn't you say that of him? Probably. But when he encountered Jesus, just with a word, he was delivered and, and freed and saved. Truth of the matter is, there's no way anyone can be saved. 
There's no way anyone can be saved apart from Christ on their own. You have to get that. You can't deliver yourself. You can't free yourself. You can't save yourself from your sin and its consequences. But Jesus can deliver you. So if you've ever thought this, that you can't be saved, you're just you're too far gone. You're too wicked. You've done too many bad things. You think to yourself, God, God could never accept me. He could never save me. You don't know what I've done. You don't know how bad I am. If you've ever thought that, you're dead wrong. I mean, look what Jesus did for this guy. He was the worst of the worst. And Jesus delivered him. He proved time and time again he has the power to deliver even the worst of the worst. There's no one unsavable. And he can deliver you. And that's why you must turn to him. That's the third lesson. It comes from the townspeople. From the townspeople, the lesson is today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. They had salvation in their midst. They turned him away. But like Hebrews chapter 4, verse 7 says, Today, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Don't turn away. Do not let your sin continue to deceive you. Instead, you must humble yourself. Cry out to God in mercy. God will hear. God will forgive. You have to remember Jesus died on the cross. He rose from the dead to pay the penalty for your sins. And if you turn to him, he will forgive. He will grant you new life, eternal life. Whatever you do, you can't doubt Christ's mercy here. He showed mercy on the demons, mercy on the townspeople, mercy on the demoniac himself. But his mercy won't last forever. His withdrawal, his withholding of judgment, that won't last forever. Today is the day of salvation. If you've been wanting to give your life to the Lord, thinking about it, holding back because you think you're not worthy, that just that ends today. Today is the day of your salvation. Don't keep turning Christ away. And then finally, the last lesson comes from the demoniac after he was delivered. We never know his name. But the lesson is go and tell others. Go and tell others. Of course, this applies only to those who have embraced Jesus and turned to him. But go and tell others. That's your great commission. Just tell people what? Tell them what great things the Lord has done for you. How He had mercy on you. How you were lost, but He found you. You were enslaved to sin, but He freed you. Just go tell them. By the way, Luke chapter 8.39, Luke's version, he makes it very explicit what Jesus said to the man. Jesus said to the man, go and tell people what great things God has done for you. And what did the man do? He went and he told people what great things Jesus did for him. You catch that? Jesus is God. That's what the man believed. And that's actually the greatest lesson to learn. That's actually what the text is really about. It's like the calming of the storm. This story really serves the purpose of once again forcing you to beg the question, like we learned in chapter 4, verse 41, who is this? Just who is this Jesus who can still the storm of the sea, still the storm raging inside this man? Who is this? And there's only one conclusion. The demons knew it. Son of God. Son of the Most High God. So you must confess Him, believe Him, trust Him. He will forgive. He will show mercy. He will change your life and transform you. But today is the day of salvation. Don't let the day go by. And for those who have, then go and tell others. Share with others the joy you have. If you have it, you should. Just share the joy you have over what the Lord has done for you. I was lost. Now I'm found. I was enslaved. Now I'm free. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do confess and pray and thank that same prayer. Thank you for for delivering us. We do confess readily with our mouth that you are the one true God, the Son of the Most High God, and we confess with our lives. We aim to live a way that confesses. We do believe you. You are the true God, and we do follow you. We thank you for redemption. We thank you for coming to earth, humbling yourself, enduring stuff like this rejection, even among these men who saw your power, and enduring the ultimate shame on the cross for us, for our salvation.
We thank you for sovereignly delivering us, opening our eyes, renewing our mind, drawing us to yourself, that we too can be sitting clothed in our right mind with you at your feet. Now we are your disciples. So we thank you. We praise you. I pray for those who have not, that you humble them, that you you show them the fear of God, humble them. I pray for those who have a, a false confession for the hypocrite. They learn too that your mercy doesn't last forever, even that. Well, there will be a day of reckoning for that. I pray all may seriously turn to Christ in a real discipleship, uh, following Him as their Lord and Savior. We give you glory, Lord, and we thank you for our time and your word. Hearing these uh, most unexpected but special stories remind us of who you are, what you have done for us. Because that was us. We were no better than the man. But you found us. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.